Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 18. Healing through understanding. How psychoanalysis works. And how is this supposed to work here? This is the question that quite a few patients ask at the beginning of psychotherapy. It is a simple and legitimate question. However, there is no simple answer. How psychotherapy works, especially psychoanalytic treatment, is, at first glance, more difficult to explain than, say, the effect of a medical procedure. A doctor let's say, a family physician, looks into the patient's throat with an instrument, sees a bacterial infection there, and prescribes an antibiotic. The patient soon feels better, and the therapy has worked. Even though the healing process is complicated to describe on a biological level, there seems to be no question that it was the medication and the family physician's prudent actions that helped to improve the condition. But what is it like in psychotherapy? What is the drug that a psychotherapist administers? Psychotherapists don't have any pills in the cupboard. Instead, they work with conversation. How can a conversation cure a disease? For behavioural therapy, this appears much easier to explain. Behavioural therapists prescribe to their patients exercises, relaxation techniques, confrontation training and so on. In other words, basically a prescribed set of measures that directly address their symptoms and are meant to reduce them. If a person is tense, he or she receives relaxation techniques. If he or she is afraid and is avoiding something, relaxation techniques and confrontation training, for example. We will come back to the question of whether it really is solely these techniques that actually help a patient in behavioural therapy, or perhaps something rather different. But what, after all, is the drug in psychoanalysis? Psychoanalysists have no ready-made techniques, nor a book with therapy instructions, no exercises, or anything else that they can conjure up from some therapeutic toolbox. Or if they do indeed have some, and have integrated them into the therapy, they will, depending on the therapeutic method, make use of them in a particular fashion. In psychoanalysis, the principle is Healing through understanding. What does that mean? On this question, there have been a lot of misunderstandings in the reception of psychoanalysis. To begin with, understanding means that something obviously remains to be understood. We have already heard various times that what is not understood can also be substituted with unconscious. When a patient with a symptom, for instance strong fears, visits a psychoanalyst, the psychoanalyst will, to begin with, 
assume that there is something about the patient's experience that is not understood, that is unconscious, whereby unconscious is not to be equated with repressed, as repression is rather a special case of unconscious content. Something is tormenting the patient, causes intense fear, something cannot be thought, felt or integrated. Naturally, the patient may already have certain notions and ideas about what this is all about. And the therapist may also know all kinds of theories about the development of anxiety symptoms. But when the therapist first encounters the patient, he or she doesn't, for the time being, know anything. And even the psychoanalytic textbooks won't help either. Analysts have learned in their education that they should, in fact, forget, or at least neglect, their knowledge and theories, and should first dedicate their attention entirely to the patient. They will make an attempt at understanding the patient and their problems. The word understanding has a very multifaceted and complex meaning here. Understanding can be conceived of in terms of cognitive insights, as in when the patient, who has perhaps already read some books on psychoanalysis, says, I know where my fears come from. It has to do with my mother and my difficult childhood. First of all, that is a phrase that can be said. It may even be correct, in terms of the facts of the patient's biography. But to state this on a purely factual level has little to do with understanding. The therapist could immediately inform the patient of such correlations in the very first session, and the patient might even agree with them. But this would not achieve anything at all, apart from the fact that it would be a very strange prelude to a therapeutic relationship. In a sense, the most primitive conception of psychoanalysis paints a picture in which the therapist imparts to the patient a great deal of such interpretations, interspersing peculiar theories about sexuality, childhood and the mother, thereby hoping to improve something or other in the patient's condition. But this has nothing to do with contemporary psychoanalytic practice. To comprehend something on a cognitive level, to utter it, does not by a long shot mean understanding it, and a theory about the development of symptoms has yet to cure any symptoms. Aside from the cognitive, understanding also means getting an emotional contact with that which is understood. Only once we can feel with our hearts that which we think with our heads can we speak of understanding in the narrower sense. Awareness without feeling is not alive, like a body without blood. To express this with a different image. The same verse in a poem can have extraordinary meaning to one person, for whom it is connected to a feeling, and yet it can have no meaning at all to someone else, for whom there are no feelings associated with it, even if both could specify the correct metre, the name of the author and the epoch. 
Psychoanalysis is about finding this kind of access to oneself. That means also access to the meaning of one's own feelings, thoughts, and one's own history, not to mention current and everyday experiences. Understanding is thus more than stringing together causal chains. Just think of the following example from family therapy. The parents of a child of elementary school age have a second child. Initially, the first child seems to be happy. But since their sibling has come into the world, his behaviour has progressively changed. He has become more and more defiant, just falls around, has troubles with his friends, is becoming worse at school. Or he withdraws, doesn't come out from behind the TV and computer, and no longer speaks to his parents. One could also say, the first child begins to show some behavioural symptoms that, from the parent's perspective, seem to be the problem here. A therapy that does not rely on understanding could now focus solely on the child's problematic behaviour. Develop trainings, reinforcement plans, countermeasures... However, even if sophisticated psychotechnology manages to bring the child back on track, that would be a tragic solution, basically leaving the child alone with his sorrows. An understanding approach would be to work together in a family therapy to find out why the child is behaving in this way. He may feel set aside, no longer so important, when all the attention is given to the new sibling. Behind his defiance is a desperate and powerless attempt to compel his parents' love and attention. Understanding that there are reasons for this behaviour unburdens the child, takes him out of the role of being the problem in the family. The parents should approach the child with understanding reflect on which ways they themselves may have contributed to making the child feel left out. And even the child himself may be able to better understand why he feels that way. Not only from individual therapy, but also from family therapy, we know that building such spaces for thought and understanding can work small miracles, more than any false techniques for controlling behaviour. However, it is not only in external relationships and families that such understanding can be healing. This also applies to our inner relationships, to our inner family, and to the inner conflicts that characterise psychic life. And often enough, it is we ourselves who are those parents lacking understanding, who call for quick interventions to bring the inner child under control and to eliminate the symptom. In most cases, it is about emotional access to a domain that is blocked with fears, shame, or other effects, a psychic wound that recoils with any touch or provokes an angry backlash, which is why a therapist needs here a delicate touch. Establishing a connection to inner experience is indeed much more difficult than formulating logical or cognitive connections. However, 
In the moment that a patient can feel this part of the inner world, that means can also create and endure an inner space for sadness, pain, anger or fear, an essential step has already been taken. Oftentimes, long before something can be really felt and thought consciously, central themes take shape in the patient's dreams. The patient dreams of abandonment, situations of separation, threats, or other incidents. The fact that a patient can dream his or her pain is often the first step towards emotional understanding and indicates that the healing process is in progress. In most cases, the patient's dreams are also transformed through the course of therapy. For example, when a figure that clearly evokes the person of the analyst shows up in the dream and assumes a certain role, or when recurring dreams come to a different, better end, and so on. These are the signs of inner change. However, we have not yet given an exhaustive answer to the question of what the drug is in psychoanalysis. What does the therapist do when he or she heals by understanding? In fact, we have all frequently experienced how healing understanding can be when we feel understood by someone else. For example, when we are sad because we are heartbroken. We talk about it with a friend. The friend listens, takes his or her time, gives our feelings space. After a while, if we feel understood, we will feel relieved. Our heartache will subside. Feeling understood in this case, however, does not mean that our friend has presented to us psychopathological theories about the peculiar processes of our psychic lives. He or she has opened up to our feelings, our heartache. We have shared our heartbreak with him, communicated to him, and in this process of emotional exchange, we feel relieved. This can happen in silence, but also by talking with the friend about the experience, sorting it out together, trying to understand it, perhaps even relating it to past experiences. The friend, in our example, enters into empathic contact with us, and here lies, albeit once again in a completely different context, the healing potential of psychotherapy. Providing space for our feelings, discussing them, enduring and digesting them with us, even in those areas that seem hardly bearable, is by no means an everyday occurrence. The friend might, in fact, not understand the inner experience, as is often the case with depressed patients. Pull yourself together, damn it. Look, others have it even worse than you. I don't understand what the problem is. Indeed, the patients themselves don't understand and don't know why they feel the way they do. It is especially characteristic of psychic problems that the cause is not as obvious as in the case of lovesickness after a breakup. The friend might, 
for example, also try to prop us up, give us tips on how we can feel better, focus on the positive aspects, give us courage, etc. This is also helpful and often this is exactly what we need. But if this is always the way our friend responds to us, we will not feel understood. With positive corrective actions, the friend, in a sense, locks up the room, the emotional contact. And behind the door, we are left alone with our sad feelings. Maybe because the intense feelings, sadness and fear, affect him or her too deeply. He doesn't want to have to bear them himself. He wants to drive them away. It's a bit as if, despite all their best intentions, he were to say to us, Don't bring me your bad feelings. I can't handle them. Let's turn them into something good instead. Here, look, there are, after all, also positive aspects. A psychoanalyst has learned also to deal with such feelings, not to lock the room, but instead precisely to keep such places open, not to leave a patient alone with their emotional states. And naturally, a psychoanalyst is not a best friend, nor should they replace them. Precisely because the psychoanalyst and patients are not friends, that means there exists no private, family or similar interference, opens up room for thoughts and feelings that would otherwise not be disclosed anywhere else. This process of emotional exchange is also called containing in psychoanalysis. Based on a concept from the famous analyst Wilfred Bayan, the analyst helps the patient to digest unbearable feelings and states. They pick up on the patient's affects, transform them, and give them back to the patient in a more bearable and understandable form. This is the underlying process that is known as the therapeutic technique of interpretation. This model of therapeutic healing comes from developmental psychology in particular the study of the interaction of parents with their infants and young children. For the development of a stable inner emotional life, how parents deal with their children's feelings is crucial. If, for example, a mother is successful at taking in her infant's violent affects, for instance, its desperate crying, soothing them and returning them to the infant in the form of a milder feeling. Then the infant will learn to regulate its feelings. It will be different if the mother cannot handle its desperate crying, quickly puts a pacifier in its mouth, moves away or even reacts angrily. The infant remains alone with its undigested feelings and tries to regulate them itself. For example, by chewing rather desperately on the pacifier, or by putting a fist in its mouth and biting it. This is, to some extent, the prototype of a psychic symptom, an act of substitution for an unbearable feeling. Of course, analysts don't treat their patients like babies. 
But some part of this process of incorporating and processing affects is also retained in the therapeutic exchange. If a feeling of great sadness or anger takes hold during the session, the analysts will not necessarily just offer up positive countermeasures or comforting remedies. The therapeutic pacifier, so to speak. The therapist will instead accept the feeling, name it, and discuss it with the patient. That means make the nascent feeling comprehensible, where there was only nameless pain, fear, or inner emptiness, slowly emerges words, feelings, and thoughts. In a metaphorical sense, out of a chaotic sea of pain, there gradually emerges psychic land, even if it is initially only a few islands. This is perhaps also a description of what is called psychological transformation. This does not mean that an analyst would never give practical advice to their patients or discuss things in a logical and rational way with them. Some forms of psychoanalytic therapy, such as mentalization-based therapy for treating borderline disorders, have very structured frameworks and guidelines which have borrowed some elements from behavioural therapy. But even in a more open type of therapy, a good therapist will have a sense for what the patient needs at a particular moment. Some support, some practical advice, a conversation about current worries or life history, or even mutual silence. However, a psychoanalyst will always keep the relational dimension of the therapeutic conduct in mind. What else is being said to the patient when giving practical advice, tips, or something else? This always depends on the situation, but could be, for example, I know what is right for you, and you don't. You need me in order to do things right. As we have heard in the episode on transference and counter-transference, such moments are often entry tickets for transference, earlier relationship patterns in which the therapist unconsciously takes on the role of the father, who always reacted to his child's grief with practical advice, perhaps because he could not bear the feelings himself. Conversely, those moments in which the therapist acts, thereby abandoning therapeutic restraint and becoming tangible, can also become significant moments of change in psychoanalysis. A mutual understanding also means that therapists must, now and again, expose themselves to intense affects during the session. Therapy is not just about normal lovesickness, but usually about states that are much worse and more difficult to bear. Catastrophic fear, shame, great anger and sadness, inner fragility, which are often bundled up in symptoms. What may at first sound simple, enduring, digesting and working through emotions, can be a great challenge, as it is all too tempting at many points 
to pull out the therapeutic pacifier. This relationship dimension, the sharing and processing of certain thoughts and feelings, is perhaps the secret of the remedy of understanding. And we can now say what the medicine of psychoanalysis is. It is the therapist themselves, or the therapeutic relationship, in which understanding and being understood is possible. It is this learning in and with the therapeutic relationship that, in the case of a successful psychoanalysis, makes possible new experiences and a new space for thinking in which one's own conflicts no longer have to express themselves in the form of symptoms. Behavioural therapy, if it were to consist exclusively of means for reducing symptoms, would, incidentally, be that friend who always has those positive countermeasures in their back pocket. But, indeed, behavioural therapists do not just run through programmes with their patients. They are not therapy robots. They, too, enter into relationships with their patients. They, too, endure emotions along with them. And the more successful that is, the more effective behavioural therapy is as various studies on the curative effect of the therapeutic relationship show. And perhaps it is something in the relational dimension itself that, even with family doctors and their medical procedures, contributes to healing the patient. As someone who looks after the patient, listens to them, cares about their suffering. Of course, there are also many other things that pertain to psychoanalysis that were not addressed here. The decisive factor, however, is that this is done on the basis of emotional and empathic contact. The therapist must be in living contact with the patient, not in contact with a theory or a concept. For this reason, there is no general and universal answer to the question, how does therapy work? Understanding and being understood is and will always remain something individual that cannot be subsumed into a ready-made conception of therapy, nor a set of methods. Or would we feel understood by someone who tells all patients the same thing, something previously learned from a manual? who treats us like a psychological device, into which you have to insert the right coin to get out what we want. How a therapy works is ultimately not decided by researchers, health insurance companies, or therapy concepts, but is, to a large extent, the product of the joint work of therapist and patient. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.